Greetings and welcome to the Mount Rushmore podcast. My name is Jeff, and I'm joined, as always, by my good buddies Richard. Hello. And Michael. Howdy. These gents debate and deliberate the most ubiquitous aspects of a variety of topics. And this time around, we're doing the Mount Rushmore of epic comeuppances. Uh, there have been some items in the news lately uh, about uh, persons or entities um, that have had uh, uh, their petards uh, hoisted upon they, them. They, yeah, they have been hoisted upon said petards. Um, and, uh, you know, all political stuff aside, because we never uh, delve into our political opinions here on Rushmore, um, it's fucking awesome to see. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, maybe it'll start a trend. But uh, I thought it'd be fun to discuss this and maybe discuss, celebrate this, sure. uh, and maybe the gentlemen think the same. So um, why don't we just jump into it? Uh, uh, who wants to go first, Michael? I would love to go first. Okay. I love this category, by the way. I I love as soon as um, I finally read the things that you wrote to me versus ignoring them for two and a half weeks. <laughs> I was like, uh, <laughs> yeah, this would be great. Oh, awesome! But comeuppance, what a great what a great feeling to see uh, someone um, you know just get theirs. The karma wheel kind of comes. Ah, oh, just love it. And my my first choice. Richard, I hope it's, I hope it, if not on your list, I hope you appreciate it. 2014, Brazil, host country. Oh, that's a good one. Of the oh. uh, World Cup getting throttled seven to one by Germany in, in the semifinal <laughs> matches. Just, if there was only a German word for enjoying someone's. <laughs> if only the Germans. If only the Germans could have a very specific thing. <laughs> Ah, well, maybe there's maybe there's a Portuguese version of uh, Schadenfreude, but boy, I, what's amazing about it is like you know Brazil has been, I mean, not that Germany hasn't been like a, a, a soccer powerhouse too in their own way over many decades, but like Brazil just in particular, just like very arrogant in their soccer Brazilianess, um, you know. They trot out Blanca onto the field and he electrifies, electrifies everybody. And then um, I think Pele, com Pele comes out to sell his Crestfield wax paper. <laughs> but just for them to get beaten so handedly and so quickly, I was reading that they scored five goals on him in like the first six minutes of play. And can imagine, just I, to have this entire country just get defeated by one other country in a non-violent way is uh, just amazing. Just amazing to me. And to be, to have it done in their, in their own face, in their you know own, what's, in their own home. Yeah. What's interesting is the amount to which, uh, the extent to which big uh, global sporting events are kind of our new uh, wars, <laughs> mm. like a, a way that one country will show its uh, might against another. And so to have that happen, it almost seems like uh uh, uh, a battle <laughs> has been won. Do you feel like anybody ever thinks they deserve it? Does any anybody? I remember once there was once during a kickball game that our team was kind of trouncing another, and we were getting to the point of a little bit point of kind of arrogance. Sure. Um, and they, they should have mercy ruled and should have this, should have that. And at one point, the opposing team's coach said something like, "That's enough." 
that's that's enough. And then I remember turning to another player and going, "Yeah, we were dicks. We <laughs> we 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 should have." There was always there was always a feeling of how do you play this game where you're clearly better than the other team, but you don't want to feel like you are um, pandering or pandering is a good yeah. word because uh, they're giving your best effort. You want your players to give their best effort. But then there's at some point when uh, you just decide to change the strategy a little bit. Don't, you know, try to kick the ball hard that might create more outs. But that doesn't mean that you're not trying to get on base or trying to do yeah. these things. And there was never a good solution. Yeah. There was never something that was um, like, uh, well, this is the way to go about it. Because mm -hmm. you ultimately would have someone on your own team who just wouldn't listen to anything that you'd suggest anyway. And then they'd be a dick and you'd be like, yeah. God damn it. I'm sorry, Michael. Yes. <laughs> well, to that end, I guess I wonder, um, I, I like my justice served <laughs> in a way in which the person maybe has a moment of realization in which the mm. hubris has, uh, um, the, the, the petard has been, <laughs> they have been hoisted. But uh, I think most people really always believe themselves to be the underdog. Brazil still thinks it's the underdog, <laughs> the victim. Maybe not. I don't know. Richard, they also, you... um, they also uh, lost three nothing to the Netherlands in the third place game afterwards. So oh, it just got heaped. It just got heaped on even more. Wow, wow. Manfredi, what do you got? All right, my first choice is uh, Baltimore Orioles slugger Rafael Palmero. Okay. Who got three thousand base hits, uh, which is a giant baseball milestone. It was something like, I could look this up real quick, like the 14th player in baseball history or something like that to get 500 home runs. And uh, actually, not even that. It was one of the, at the time, five players to get 3,000 hits and 500 home runs in his career. A surefire Hall of Famer. And then 10 days later, tested positive for steroids. Yeah. Oh, wow. Which only made it, which was only made it more satisfying for some. Uh, was when he was called up to Congress during the congressional hearings about steroids. And couldn't fit through the door. Yeah. His giant head got stuck. Yes. <laughs> no, this was, this happened earlier in the season before he hit the home, before he got all the records and before he got suspended. This was back in March. He went to Congress and he's pointing his finger and he's, let me start by telling you this. I have never used stero steroids. Period. I don't know how to say it any more clearly than that. Never. And then, like six months later, he's suspended for steroid use. Wow. And I could have I could have selected any number of the steroid users, uh, of the prominent steroid users in baseball of that era, whether it's your Barry Bonds or Mark McGuire in the same um, uh, congressional hearing, repeating over and over. I'm not here to talk about the past. I'm here to talk about the future. When asked if he had ever used steroids or anything to do with steroids, he just kept repeating that over and over and over again. <laughs> what did um, he think that was going to accomplish? <laughs> well, you know, it, 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 somehow some lawyer had given them him that phrase, obviously, <laughs> and he was in his steroid-addled mind. I don't know what steroids do to your brain, but I think I don't think adding intelligence points to it is one of them. Um, somehow he managed to just get that stuck and just think, oh, 
say it again. Do, 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 yeah. do, do. But the Raphael Palmiero, Palmiero one wound up becoming sort of the the gold standard for Schadenfreude mm-hmm. during the steroids era because he was just very much like I never did steroids and I don't approve of people who do it. And then like six months later, 10 days after his crowning achievement as a player, Bing gets popped for it. Does that, uh, does, I mean, they take it away. They take, take away, away what? That record or that. Well, he's still got the record, but he's, he's, uh, tarnished, 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 tarnished. He's only ever the most, the most, uh, votes he ever received in the hall of fame balloting was 11%, um, which is not even near close enough to get into the hall of fame. And he would have been an absolute surefire, 100% first ballot hall of famer without the steroid allegations. Wow. So it basically ruined his reputation. Uh-huh. And I think that, I think that people, people remember it with a little bit of glee mm-hmm. because of the way he was so righteous and angry about denying versus Mark McGuire, who was just trying to get out of there as quickly as possible. And later came back and admitted, yeah, I did take steroids. Rafael Palmero to this day still is very insistent that he never did steroids. And he must have taken, there must have been a, a tainted supplement that he took from one of his teammates. Uh, and it's just like, dude, you got caught. Yeah. Stone up to it. Everyone's doing, 90% of baseball were doing steroids back in the in, in that era, the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, just admit it, own it move on with your life yeah. but he's just not capable of doing that it wasn't the the offense itself it was the indignance when it was too thinking two wrongs will make this right and that I, my bluster yeah yeah i think that's i think that's where baseball fans kind of looked at him and went we're glad you're getting what you deserve yeah yeah what uh, um okay uh winfield what's your second one my second choice is the uh, ultimate comeuppance that Randolph and Mortimer Duke uh, suffer <laughs> at the hands of uh, oh. Billy Ray Valentine and Louis Winthrop III uh, in the movie Trading Places uh, for their uh, ridiculous frozen concentrated orange juice uh, yeah. scheme that I'm still still not quite sure how it works. I don't know what I don't know what they were. They were like buying futures. This is like, I need you, Jeff, to explain it to me the same way that you like close your eyes and explain Bitcoin and um, (laughs) and crypto sometimes to me. Because sometimes you go into like this fugue state where you just uh... know exactly, you've heard it in some ways, you've researched it enough. I don't know what the scheme is. It's some seemingly like shorting the payment and buying it on futures. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they switched a report. A gorilla costume was involved, uh, as well as some other kind of. Racist I think stuff. Jamie Lee Curtis's boobs were involved at some point, which very much so. Heavily involved, yeah, heavy and heavily involved. He erased um, any of my understanding of oranges. But, I understood uh, oranges. Yeah, yeah. What I what I love about the end scene of the movie is, n- besides not understanding exactly what was going on, but there's like this moment where there's just like both sides are like. Uh, have their arms crossed and they're like smugly smiling. The Duke mm-hmm. brothers are, have this huge smile because they think they've got this report. They think they have the upper hand and the other two ding-dongs know that they don't or they have a fake one. And yeah. they're, 
they're like they they're just like we're ruined. Turn the machines back on. Ah. <laughs> to screw on these two guys' machines. life. Yeah. Turn on those machines. Get it back rolling. It's just great. <laughs> the one guy falls down like uh, clutching his heart, and he's like, "Get up!" Yeah, pulls uh, pulls the full Fred Sanford. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I love it when somebody falls down during a comeuppance. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> this is not a come down. It's it's a comeuppance. <laughs> you fell down. It's my favorite. It's my favorite. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, so y- that's a non-sports and a non-real one. Okay. That's that's cool. I mean, a, a fictional one. Yeah. Uh, what do you got, uh, Richard, for your second one? All right, all mine are real ones, by the way, because I, okay, I, okay. I wish I would have thought of it. It's a real movie, yeah, yeah. It is a real movie, and yeah. I believe it's based on actual events. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's the based gr- off a true true story. So the great citrus shortage of, of, of 1981. Yeah, yeah. Um, my second one is Bill Cosby. Oh, wow. mm. when you put the pills in the thing, and then you do <laughs> the thing. <laughs> and I think the comeuppance factor here was that Bill Cosby held himself up. And he wasn't just a comedian. He wasn't just an actor. He was someone who held himself up as a moral shining light. Especially as he felt thought of himself as, I think especially within the black community, as someone who is speaking the truth. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people, it felt like that he was, he would talk down to them about, uh, you know, crime and the way the kids are today and the way kids should be acting and just, you know, the, the whole, the whole package. And I think the, he even made a, a statement at some point, you know, even talking about, you know, you know, kids wearing their, their clothes, their pants too low and having no manners and they're all going to wind up in jail. Well, <laughs> well, let's see who's the one who wound up in jail after all, Mr. Cosby. Yeah. I mean, I think it was more than just a fall, just your standard fall from grace. I think the fact that he portrayed himself as this kind of uh, head of morality, mm-hmm. this sort of like a shining light for morality, mm-hmm. kind of made it so that whenever... And, and and all of that the the kind of you know sexual assault stuff had been talked you know, talked about in in kind of hushed circles for a long time, but when it really came out publicly, I think it made a lot of people go, "Oh, look, a hypocrite." Yeah, he's not just a sexual assault, you know, a, a rapist or you know anything like that. He's a hypocrite, mm-hmm. and and for a lot of people, I hate to say it, that's just as bad. Mm-hmm. I I think the person really rubbing their hands with glee was Bart Simpson. Sure, <laughs> and he certainly won the uh, uh, the parental figure versus the yeah uh, you know don't have a cow man bad influence kid from. I recall that being such a heavily like uh, you know what this this person is a shining example of a great family on their sitcom. And this person is a shining example of such a, a poor family, not uh, financially, but just like a poorly run family with no family values. And one's outlasted the other. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. 
also, I think anyone who's involved with any sitcom that ran on Thursday nights at 8 p.m. on a network other than NBC during the 80s probably rubbed their hands with glee because that's the bastard that got their show canceled after like five episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Right. I mean, basically, you had no chance if you had a TV show that was going up against the Cosby show. So I imagine that there are tons of ex-sitcom stars who just slept a little bit easier after all of this came out. Who was it? uh, I think Eddie Murphy was talking about Cosby, you know, criticizing him because of his use of profanity. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, Murphy... Cosby was Murphy's hero, you know, or Pryor was too, but I think like a hero of his. And so to have that kind of critique and then to see that this person is clearly not beyond reproach. Um, I, I, you know, in that case also, it's kind of a really not bittersweet, but for, for many people, the, the, for, I, I think I've heard in regards to that discussion, like what, what do we do with these, monsters (laughs) monsters <laughs> who uh become our um, um um supreme court justices or presidents or right uh, f- film studio heads or oscar winners or th- uh heads uh, theological leaders and things like that and and w- what do we do with the light that they shined so brightly that guided so many people then we realize how fractured that light was and how yeah, how now whatever guidance we've gotten seems almost seems really kind of uh, sullied by by that. You know, Cosby was such a accepted so uh, broadly in white America across color lines and things like that. That that uh, from a representation standpoint, you know, there's so many people who looked up to him as somebody who can cut through the conversation of, of race and cut through all these yeah cross so many barriers let's talk about crossing over and then to have him fall so hard and then get acquitted he's not in jail anymore is he no 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 but he did have to spend enough time in jail that i, yeah. I at least can feel like some ju- some small level if not at yeah. an appropriate level of justice was served yeah absolutely well halftime is served Oh, and, uh, it's a it's a dish best served cold, I believe. Di- oh, okay, all right. How, here's a freezing cold halftime for you, and uh, well, the cold nothing's cold out on the Mount Rushmore uh, podcast dot uh, com website. There's so many. Hot oh, we got our hot takes. Yeah, hot takes, <laughs> hot takes, uh, spam and spam cakes out there. Go out there Ooh. too. There's no way you can catch any kind of virus from the Mount Rushmore podcast site um, we're catching all the viruses we're catching all of them for you and, and containing them within our url Download. it's like it's like an it's like a ghostbusters containment unit for yeah. spam yeah it totally is um yeah don't don't cross the streams and uh don't uh don't miss out on all of you can go uh seek seek out and get but you know then also go to uh uh the podcast uh, listener thingy of your choice and download rate and review past episodes we would love it even if you were to think of if you became so inspired to think of a topic to submit that topic to us because we would love uh to hear your suggestions past submitters suggestors have become uh recording people we guests on the podcast 
and it was a lot of fun. So we'd love to get you on this podcast too. You don't have to, but it'd be fun. And Winfield's going to let us know his third one. I got three words for you. Big, bad wolf. Now let me tell you about Mm. this guy. (laughs) This guy just goes around eating whoever he wants, whenever he wants, (laughs) at any time. He doesn't care what kind of house you live in. Nope. I don't know, Jeff. You moved into a house recently. Straw. It's a house made, made out, out of straw. straw. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I got bad news. <laughs> I got bad news for you. I hear puffing, but is there puffing? <laughs> Do I also hear huffing? <laughs> I know I know. there's a, 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 a airplane glue addict around here somewhere. Uh, I love the story of the big bad wolf. It's one of the strange ones that my son also... Uh, has such an affinity towards uh, he loves it in all forms whether it's a uh, 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 merry melodies or silly symphonies version or if it's like uh, I don't know there's some really creepy versions of of the yeah. big bad wolf and the three little pigs um, where this wolf gets absolutely demolished at the end in some of these you know <laughs> sometimes he goes down a chimney and he burns his bottom and he runs away yeah. yelping scraping his ass along the ground it's fun sometimes he goes into like a boiling pot of turpentine and he gets boiled alive and eaten by the pig at the end wow either way this wolf this wolf had it coming the entire time knocking people's houses down made out of sticks yeah made out of straw good riddance (laughs) uh do you feel like it's the same wolf in Little Red Riding Hood? Like it's the same guy. Hmm. Well, no, he got hacked open by a huntsman. Yeah, and then they they pulled the uh, the grandma out sometimes. The woodsman, yeah, yeah. The woodsman, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I bet they're. I bet they know each other though. I bet that they're like fine with like swapping the swapping names. Yeah, it's like on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. <laughs> I'll be the one that goes after the pig and uh-huh. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you go after grandma and little red riding hood. And then, you know, Sunday we're going to rest. Yeah. It's right, the Lord's day. They fill in for each other on, on like day. I mean, they, another one needs like a vacation day. Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of PTO. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. the wolf calendar is, you know, were, were the pigs assholes though? Like didn't the pigs kind of like, sing and dance and say who's afraid who cares like in some versions yes you know there uh there was a neglect of their duties to build a house a proper house or to build one to to make one sturdy enough definitely there is a morality involved of doing something the right way and if you don't the big bad wolf is going to come get you um but i don't know if they were necessarily inviting it sure hey i mean Who's, who are we to say what one should make their house out of? Yeah. Maybe, you know, if you're living in a dangerous environment, maybe build a little bit stronger next time. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, I'm really hedging my um my big bad wolf. Maybe he yeah. maybe he wasn't the right to eat a couple of pigs. <laughs> like you haven't eaten some pigs in your day, Michael. That's true. I've seen you eat pepperoni pizza. But I haven't like knocked down their house to get to them. Yeah. I feel like his thing was he just assumed he like the um, hair from the tortoise and the hare. Mm. He assumed, I got this. I can, I can use my natural abilities to huff and puff, 
and blow the house down. I'm not even going to worry about it. But he was wrong. He had to do more. Yeah. All right, uh, Man Freddy. Speaking of huffing and puffing, Jim Ooh. Baker. Oh, wow. Yeah. Of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker fame. Yeah. Uh, disgraced televangelist, because could there be any other kind? <laughs> yeah, there's very few graced <laughs> televangelists. There's Billy really Graham, that, and that's about it. That God comes down and goes, he's right. I said that. <laughs> Give him your money. He gives it to me. So Jim Baker, for those of you young, too young to remember, was the head of the PTL, Praise, Praise the Lord Club, which would run on uh, TV stations throughout the country and was essentially a, a Ponzi scheme. It was a way for Jim Baker himself to make money by get, by taking in donations. I don't believe he was one of the I don't believe that at any point he ever said he was going to be called home if he didn't receive a certain amount of cash. I think that was Oral Roberts, if oh, I remember wow. correctly. But Jim Baker, they were, it was like a nightly talk show that was all focused around, in, in theory, Christianity and religion. But more importantly, it was focused around Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and trying to get as much money from your grandmother as possible. Yeah. Um, eventually... Um, he was accused of sexual misconduct by a church secretary. Um, and then that led to allegations of misuse of ministry funds. And he wound up serving five years in jail for that. Um, the last time he's, he's now back into the public light. Uh, he has attempted to restart his uh, TV televangelism career. Um, he has been, promoting that the end of time to- end days are coming uh, and that when the end days come, you'll need to make sure that you're prepared for it. So he's got all of the survivalist like food, MREs supplies that he's been selling to his audience. Uh, these guys are just, it's like he, so this is an example of someone who got his come up and, and just didn't learn the lesson. Yeah. Got in trouble. He got in trouble a couple of years ago for selling, Colioid uh, silver supplements as a cure for for uh, COVID, and wound up getting sued by various attorneys general in different states for that. So it's just the guy doesn't get it. You think if anyone would have learned his lesson, it would be Jim Baker. Mm-hmm. Tammy Tammy Faye Baker appeared to have learned her lesson, or at least publicly did, and became this beloved gay icon somehow in a way that I'm still not a hundred percent sure how that actually happened but jim baker learned no lessons changed none of his uh his, his mo and is just back doing the same shit that he's, he did before true american wow god bless america do you think I, I okay so i feel like people like a comeback they like they like mm. to see somebody like martha stewart um insider trading and also you know this in un, unapproachable icon of perfection <laughs> you know right. and there was i think not that that was a, a crime to sell that idea to the world but it just seemed like she deserved it her her fall seemed like a little bit of a come up it's i think 
I think it did to some extent. Here's where I will differ from with you on this. I feel like that Martha Stewart, around the time when the insider trading thing happened, people were really already starting to get sick of her shit. Yeah. The perfectionist thing. And it's almost like being convicted of insider trading and having to go to a minimum security prison wound up making her seem less perfect. Oh, it's interesting. So more more likable, maybe. And and maybe more likable. The other the the other prong of this was, of course, her friendship with Snoop Dogg. Yeah, yeah. But I think you combine the two of them, and suddenly she's not this kind of prim, perfect figure on television and magazines. She seems more like a a a normal person has foibles and makes mistakes and Mm -hmm. goes to jail just like your uncle Jimmy did. You know? Yeah. Well, wait. Not your uncle Jimmy. I mean, a generic uncle Jimmy. Oh, I thought you said Jimmy Stewart went to jail. Oh, Uncle Jimmy. That was oh, you only... don't... That's the last one on my list of comeuppance, by the way. I should get into that. It's my four, that number was... four, Jimmy Stewart. That was in my It's a Wonderful Life fan fiction where Mr. Potter is... Hauled off. The townspeople don't actually raise enough money, and he's hauled off in chains at the end of the movie. That's hilarious. Uh... Okay, okay. Um, uh, Winfield, what's the last one? And are you arrogantly going to predict that you are going to win this, Michael Winfield? Is that what you're saying? That you think... I stand here on Mount Pius, <laughs> looking down upon oh, boy. Uh, little people. <laughs> I think it's going to be a big comeuppance here. Uh, <laughs> uh-oh. Yep. Um. I have another fictional one because um, I don't know. My head was, I, I wasn't thinking of real world comeuppances. I didn't want to think about the, the real horrible people that do these things like the Alex Joneses, as you mentioned. Leave, uh, leave that to me. That's what yeah. you're thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Let Richard swim. That's my wheelhouse. In that, sure. in that drivel. Uh, my uh, final choice is the uh, constant, uh, repetition of comeuppances that happened to Mr. Biff Tannen throughout the um, Back to the Future (laughs) series of movies where it doesn't matter what what life he lives, what age of the world he lives in, at some point he's going to get his. He's the biggest, awfulest bully. Uh, He gets it from a scrawny little um, not Marty McFly. Who's the other one? George. George McFly, thank you. Uh, he gets it from George. Uh, he gets it from Marty. He gets it from Marty again. Uh, huh. Just in any time, no matter how the old. Descendants get it from Marty. <laughs> and um, it just, it, it's great because I, in each, each version of him, he's like mo- even more disgusting. Like at first he starts out like your average bully, just this big kind of strong galoot who gets beat up by, you know, the kind of wimpy sci-fi nerd. And as a wimpy sci-fi nerd, I love it. I can see myself in it. Then he turns into this Donald Trump-like character where he gains all this power and fame and glory. And um, he still gets taken out by some kid with a flying car. And then he gets turned into like this, you know, um, mid-1800s gunfighter who's just, you know, gross and disgusting even he gets covered in horseshit and like each time it's just ah chef's kiss more and more beautiful to see like this guy (laughs) who has this inkling of power and it's like you know it's this bully power that's i think um 
the bully is such a easily root againstable type mm-hmm. person. Nobody likes the bully except the bully, and maybe even the the only people that pretend to like the bully are like the bully's toadies, and mm-hmm. even they will quickly abandon that person at a moment's notice and probably revel in their own comeuppance. But um, I don't know. I, I think it, he as a character going through time or existing in different times and always having like this similar kind of horrible archetype of being this bully that gets his is just, um, it's just great. Yeah. That's fun to think it's almost Sisyphean <laughs> or it's uh, mm. his, his fate is to, to continually like there's nothing he could do to alter that fate it's all it's all uh, pre-written and and inevitable (laughs) that's a fun choice i i have to say that um due to somebody i did not like loving the back to the future franchise i kind of turned away from it um and so i have to it's not it's not uh it's not the movie's fault so i i gotta revisit those um, and that's funny, that actor, too. What's I forget the act. Tom, Tom Wilson. Thomas Wilson. Wilson. Yeah, you know, he's not Shakespeare. I mean, wait, Shakespeare's a writer. Not, well, I guess he was an actor. He's not uh, like Jeremy Irons, but he played that part pretty <laughs> pretty well. You know? And by all accounts, a super guy, as most people who play villains are. Oh, yeah, decent decent dude. Yeah, that's funny. Okay, uh, Richard Manfredi, what's, what's the final... Yeah, All right, so you mentioned you, you mentioned Alex Jones, yeah, and uh, I, I think you mentioned him at the start. I know this that his name came up when we were first discussing doing this topic as kind of a raison d'etre to be doing this in the first place. So I take a nap this morning, this afternoon, after getting back from a trip to the Long Beach Aquarium, and as I'm getting read, literally as I'm like talking to my wife about the topics that we're doing for this week and my choices and we get to the Mount Rushmore of comeuppance. She, her immediate thought was she immediately bursts out with, Oh, you mean like Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago getting raided today? What? And I went, what? Excuse me. And so I haven't had a lot of time to digest this, but yes, as we are recording this on Tuesday or on Monday, April or April, Monday, August you'll, 8th, you'll get there. You'll I get will there. eventually get there. As we are recording this on Monday, August 8th, 2022, um, this, within a few hours of, of ago, yes, Trump uh, has, has, has had Mar-a-Lago raided, has had his safe gone through and rifled through looking for possible uh, secure documents that should have been uh, kept somewhere other than his safe in Mar-a-Lago. And I just... I'm just fascinated by we we are currently in the comeuppance of Donald Trump, and I hope it doesn't stop for a long, long time. I've been, we've been promised that for like three I know. years. I know, but it feels like it's actually like happening. Like today made me feel like, oh, they're actually serving warrants and they're actually raiding his estate. They're actually serious about this. There's someone out there who might actually do something. Yeah, I got I. Just that would be such a delight. That would be such a delight. And then would I always wonder would that mean just would it be weaponized martyrdom for him? Or would somehow <laughs> or or is the is there a dirty is there underwear so dirty that could be shown to his followers that they would even blanch at? Like who if people have excused 
the most horrid behavior from this person. Yeah. What, it could ever be <laughs> revealed. The one thing that I read earlier, the only way really to stop it is, is if he is convicted of removing these like top secret documents. Um, one of the fines or one of the punishments is they can't hold public office again. And I think ultimately that's what you're looking forward to. Mm-hmm. You're looking for, like mm. he's going to continue, like all like hucksters, he's going to continue to bilk stupid people out of their money. And he may still stay rich doing it and still maintain some aspect of political power in that realm until he can't be in office anymore. Like till it's the penalty, if it is ever applied, but who knows that he removed these documents. Um, that that's part of the legal code that this person couldn't run for or hold any public office, which yeah. um, I guess, I think that's the ultimate thing to hope for is all this other stuff. He can go back to being, a super gross C-list celebrity who lives in a weird place in Florida and uh, are you talking about Jeff or, or, or Trump? Yeah. <laughs> Hold on a second. I'm uh, I know, I know, I don't. <laughs> but you know, I think that's the ultimate hope. But I, I, you know, I feel very similar to you, Jeff. I remember a bunch of years ago when Trump was first in office and he fired James Comey, and I thought, oh, this is the end. He's been in oh, office yeah. for three months and this investigation is gone and he fired and then nothing happened. And then every time it feels like this guy just slips through the fingers of law and common sense and whatever. And, you know, not that he, you know, he got pretty close to winning, so to speak, a couple of years ago now. Sure. Uh, it wasn't like a landslide. It wasn't like 70% of Americans rejected him. It was like... 53% of 47%. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a 6% difference, but it's still pretty close. And I don't know. I hate to be a naysayer, but it just, I just, I'm vibing with you, Jeff. Like it feels like it feels really cool. Yeah. Man, I love watching this movie. Yeah. I want to see it to the end and I just walk out before, you know, I see the <laughs> leprechaun pogo stick the guy to death. I've realized in, in the process of this conversation that it that this puts me in an awkward situation where I'm wishing for the continued good health of Donald Trump. Hmm. Because I want to see him live long enough to get his comeuppance. Like the yeah. last thing I want is for him to die and then everyone to go, oh, well, you know, he's dead. Forget it. We don't need to continue looking into his finances and yeah. his handling of secure documents and all of this stuff. I want him to live a good long time so all of these investigations can reach their conclusion. Yeah. Like, the, like I don't know how this guy could have any more embarrassing stuff revealed. Like, anything that would, like, <laughs> I just don't know how. But, like, and I, I, think, I think what I realized is, unlike in the movies where you kill the lead vampire and all the other vampires die, that doesn't help. That doesn't happen with these people. They just, DeSantis just grows stronger, you know, when when Trump dies or whatever. So yeah, it would just be, I guess you keep waiting. You keep waiting for like Trump head stuck in toilet zoo, zoo at toilet. Yeah. And you're like, okay, that could be good. Yeah. (laughs) What else you got, you know? And, uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, cool. Um, uh, 
what what I I guess what I think is interesting about it is my opinion on it. Whenever I see a meme of <laughs> Jake Josh Hawley running like a chicken, and all the liberals go ha 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 ha, that doesn't exist in Fox News land. They don't see that meme. They don't care. That doesn't hurt them. They don't. I, we see this, you know, this kind of come up in somewhat, and it just doesn't. It just it just doesn't go over into their world. Sadly. Um, that's depressing for me. Sorry, this became a very political uh, topic, and uh, I apologize. Oh, mostly my fault. Mostly my oh, fault. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. So right. blame me. So blame Biff me. And Biff Tannen, right? Big bad yeah. wolf. Yeah, all this political. Okay, well, let's do some picking. Uh, and uh, I was educated about Brazil and Rafael Palmeiro. That was a sports thing, and I didn't see that coming from you guys, and I really appreciate being educated the ones that felt kind of visceral to me are the like the cause, um, yeah. for sure, and the trading places brought back uh, <laughs> a lot of fun fun memories on that. So yeah, that's a great one. Those Michael. are the top four. Well done. And boobies, uh, Jamie the Curtis boobies. Okay, uh, this has been the Mount Rushmore of Jamie the Curtis boobies. I'm as always Jeff. I'm Richard. I'm Michael. Sorry, I'm trying to be more woke, bro, and not. <laughs> look, look, you can be as woke, bro, as much as you want. But when we're talking about Jamie Lee Curtis's boobies, I think all bets yes. are off. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, I'm going to get a refill of water. I'll be right back. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to do the same thing. So I'll be right back as well. I got my dog. that's good stuff stuff. um boy honestly watching this kid start to swim is that is so cool it's really cool (laughs) i bet i bet he's just wiggling his arms and legs around and laughing is he is it hard for him is it easy is he is he afraid of the water at all it's all it's all these little things it's Mm -hmm. 
you're too far away. It's it, He didn't want to get his head underwater mm. for the longest time. Now mm. this kid is jumping off the side of the pool, going all the way underwater. He's like learned that it's not scary. And he would stand on the side at first like he'd he'd want to jump but he couldn't he'd want to jump but he couldn't and he'd start to stamp his foot down because he'd Hmm. be like no and like the teacher would be like all it is is he wants to do it but he's scared to do it so these two things are conflicting Hmm. Um, but he's got he's got a great teacher it's it's been it's been really super he has three lessons to go uh you know it's taken we're doing like these midweek practice sessions swimming things too so we've been over at my dad's a lot Mm-hmm. but it's just been it's just been really really cool honestly just so cool and he'll be able to swim that's so great it's like fucking great yes <laughs> i think i was nine years old before i was always afraid of the deep end of the pool mm-hmm. and i went to like a ymca camp and there was one it was like at the end of the summer all of a sudden we weren't swimming in the shallow pool all the kids had to line up and just go jump into the deep end of the pool and I had no choice. And it was like the scariest thing. I was just standing in line, accepting my fate. Like, oh, I'm just, I guess I'm going to die in, in a minute or whatever in line. I just, I literally just thought I was going to die from jumping in the pool. And I finally did. And it was okay. I, I had a, side. yeah, I had a, I didn't learn to swim until I was nine or 10 as well. I had a friend that like had almost drowned me in his pool by like, horsing around and holding me underwater and all oh, this God. different stuff. So I, but, and I remember the feeling that I had was, I remember feeling so much older than all the other kids. Like I was next to like six year olds and I was like, or five and six year olds. And I was like nine or 10. Uh-huh. And I remember just feeling so ashamed and embarrassed. Oh, when you were learning, learning to swim so oh. late or whatever, but yeah. Yeah. Have you guys watched the new, the Sandman? Yeah, we're watching it right now. We're on uh, episode three tonight. Uh-huh. We watched the first two episodes. Yeah, we're the, we watched the first three and then have had a busy weekend. But um, I will refuse. I will refuse to watch the diner episode. Mm. I'm just I'm opting out of that one. Sarah can watch it and let me know how it was. Should I read the series first if I ever want to enjoy the series? No, no it's I different. So. I mean, it's it's all the beats are there. Okay. It's good. The guy is good as Dream, especially. I'm kind of surprised. They change a few things. They make... Mm, they combine the, a few things. They they make one of the villains a bit more center at the beginning of the story, more integral mm-hmm. to the things that are that doesn't happen that way quite in the book, but it's a, an adaption. They're, they're going to be changes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But right. the book's good on its own, and so far this series has been good, too. I'm very surprised. All right. All right. Whenever you're ready, Jeff. Oh, uh, sports calls. Sports calls. Welcome to the Mount Rushmore Podcast. Uh, this is Jeff and uh, Michael. Are you on the line? I, I'm here. I, um, Mike from NoHo. All right. Mike from NoHo, a longtime listener, first time caller. All right. Uh, okay. Well, 
a operator says we got Richard on the line. Richard, you there? Yeah, uh, is this? Yeah, I can you yeah. hear me? I can. We hear you just fine. You don't need to shout. Yeah, we, we got you on the line, Richard. Okay, can I turn? Do I turn off my you my radio? Or okay, if you want to. So today's topic, you guys are calling in because today's topic is the Mount Rushmore of sports calls. Uh, we're gonna have you guys debate and deliberate the most ubiquitous sports calls. So, uh, Winfield, you started last week with our comeuppance topic. Uh, Manfredi, you're gonna start. All right. Um, it would I think it's only appropriate to uh, begin uh, to remember the passing of the recent passing of the late great Vin Scully by talking about his call of Kirk Gibson's home run in the 1988 World Series. Also number one on my list. Okay. Has to, has to be. Vin, Vin Scully, the greatest, the greatest baseball announcer of all time, perhaps the greatest sports announcer of all time. And his, his, his crowning achievement maybe is his call of Kirk Gibson's game winning home run in the 1988 world series. Um, perfect in its understatement, which is, you know, a Vin Scully was a Vin Scully trademark, you know, just, the fact that Gibson hits the home run and she is out of here. And then he just shuts up for like a minute and just lets the pictures and the sound of the crowd tell the entire story because that's what you need at the moment. You don't need some, there's so many times that I think play by play announcers feel like they need to make themselves a part of the moment. Mm-hmm. And Scully's greatness was recognizing when there are moments that are that big, you don't need to say anything. It's all happening in front of you, out in front of the viewers. There's no need to say anything else. And that was the genius of Vin Scully. But if you go back, it's not just the call of the home run. It's the call of the entire at bat and the way he kind of builds up to the moment of the three, two count and the game being on the line. Because Kurt Gibson, for people who don't know, was the MVP of the '88 uh, for the of, of the 1988 NL, really, and he was the best player on the Dodgers, and got hurt in the previous series, and no one thought he was going to be able to play, and in the ninth inning with them down, he comes up with two outs and a runner on, and they're down by a run, and he hobbles up to the plate on two bad knees, and Vince Scully, just the way that he was able to build on the uh, on the improbability of just the moment of Kirk Gibson coming up. And then the fact that Gibson actually hits a home run. Vince Scully just is made is as integral to it as the actual home run itself. Yeah, I think I think there the things that are all captured in it are such a um, you know screenwriter's dream of a situation with the hobbled player uh, batting against like the best closer in baseball at the time. It was Dennis Eckersley. Is that right? Yes. Uh, for the A's. And um, I think he's just so poetic in the way that he, I don't know if he had it written down, but he says like in a season that has been so improbable, the impossible happened. And it's just the rhyming, not the rhyming, but the, the cadence, the, the cadence of the, the way that said, like, I don't even think like he couldn't have scripted. He couldn't have written down a ninth. If a ninth inning home run comes up by the guy that (laughs) shouldn't even be in the game, shouldn't be at bat. It's down till a last strike, 
He's fouled off all these other pitches. He's swinging wildly at anything that kind of comes close to the plate. And he just, uh, you know, it's, it's, imagine living through to that point, maybe, you know, 40 years of calling baseball games and to see something like this in the biggest stage and to be able to capture it perfectly. And he's done it so many times in different venues, whether it was like the Hank Aaron um, breaking uh, Babe Ruth's home run record. And that thing plays out for a long time in a similar fashion where he just, he lets the moment play and nobody, he just, nobody does that. There's, but I don't know. The, the Kirk Gibson home run one is just perfect. Well, that's really, I find that fascinating. Somebody else had to explain that to me. I, I turned to a coworker and said, well, what made Vince Scully so great? And that was exactly what they pointed out is underplaying and in a medium that overplays television is about selling the moment all the time. And I can also see too, like, had you come from radio, I don't know if he started, did he start in radio? You know, oh, sure. You Back in the forties. Yeah. He yeah. started before there was really almost television on base or baseball mm-hmm. on television. Yeah. Uh, you have to learn that you don't need to paint the pictures. They're already there on the set. Whereas in radio you have to, right? So that's fascinating. That's fascinating. For for me, that's that's yeah, that's ama- amazing, amazing. And right, Michael, that that the poet, the poetry of that, impossible, improbable, yeah, implausible. And, and uh, you know, I think Vince Scully was a national figure, but I think that he meant so much to the city of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I think it's really, it's hard to sort of overstate what hearing Vin Scully on a summer night calling a game, whether you're listening on the radio in your car or he was calling the game on television. I know for me, we would get Dodger games up where I grew up you know, a little bit North of Los Angeles. Um, but we would also, when I would come down to visit my grandmother in El Monte over the summer, she just had Dodger games on and they're just on in the background and she would watch it and then she wouldn't watch it and they'd be on and it'd be off. But there would be, you know, kind of her attention to it would be on and off. But the game was always on. And so Ben Scully just became this backdrop to to summer in Los mm-hmm. Angeles for me. And I'm sure, Michael, yeah. you growing up in Los Angeles, you can probably speak even more personally about that. But I, I, I know so many people who feel the same way. Yeah, I mean, there's he... I was over at my dad's this weekend and we were talking about it and he's talking, you know, he's been here since the fifties. He moved to, he moved over from England in the mid fifties and he was just, he was just, you know, he said, he told me, he's like, it's not like there were baseball games on TV every day, the way there are now. You can watch every baseball in theory. You could watch just about any baseball game you wanted. Like you got to watch baseball maybe once a week. It might've been on Sundays. Otherwise, you just listen to Vince Scully and you listen to the Dodgers and it was um, Vince Scully and I can't remember the name of his. Um, Don Drysdale. No, it was before his Don Drysdale. So whoever he came up with that was his co-broadcaster for a long time. But these were just the people that you heard on the radio all the time. That's all you'd listen to. And, you know, with um, in my later years, like kind of getting back into the Dodgers and stuff and watching games like so many memories are of just of his his voice either falling asleep on the couch on a sunday watching a game or uh you know 
a game would always be on at a various kickball bar and we if you had a chance to hear it over the you know the din of all the people talking it would be great and i remember there's this great four home run yep. ninth inning game that he called where they hit four home runs in a row to They're tie back, it back, up back, in, back to back in the yeah. bottom of the ninth and then they uh, nomar garcia para hit another home run to win it in like extra innings and like just all these things that what's nice to see is that there is always even after probably calling thousands and thousands of games there is always like a moment of surprise and unbelievability with the way that he reacted to things like he'd never seen a baseball game ever in sometimes the way that the calls sprang out and it's just what makes him so good and what makes a good broadcaster and a good sports call just so uh, it, it sells it paints the picture it sells the excitement of the moment all right uh so uh i guess that would be mike with his second choice uh, so my second choice is the Howard Cosell call of down goes Frazier, down goes Frazier. Sure. The 1973 boxing match between uh, Joe Frazier and George Foreman, where uh, George Foreman just absolutely <laughs> beat the tar out of Frazier. He knocked him out in the second round um, after knocking him down like six times within the match. And this, he just clobbered this dude. And, uh, just the way that Cosell with his like kind of weird, strange uh, nasally voice captures that moment. It's, it's, it's almost like watching, I don't know. You think of like Godzilla being knocked down or just like <laughs> a Titan, some sort of, some sort of huge, uh, you know, prehistoric animal just getting defeated. And it, like the, the the improbability of it, even, you know, George uh, Frazier was the champion at the time. And I don't know, George Foreman, I think, was in his absolute prime and just a beast of a, of a boxer. Um, but, you know, the down goes Frazier call is just one of those things that's kind of, uh, kind of just echoed through the years. It's become so iconic. You can, feels like it's, it can be applied to anything. And the reference would stand. An episode of Cheers. Did it happen? Did it happen on? No, no, no. But you could see it. You could see, yeah. you could see if uh, I don't know uh, Norm and whoever Norm mm-hmm. and Cliff Clavin were fighting about something, and one of them falls. You could you could hear it yeah. being nasally, you know, uttered out of the mouth of uh, Cliff yeah. Clavin or something too. Yeah, I mean, there's no. I mean, no other sport than boxing has such like uh, this kind of battle <laughs> imagery in it. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, man, Freddie, what's yours? All right. My second choice is the 1980 Miracle on Ice game and oh. the call in the closing minutes by Al Michaels. Mm-hmm. Of course, the, uh, the, the, the unforgettable, do you believe in miracles? Yes. Call. <laughs> Which... I, I had a chance. I, I've read Al Michaels' autobiography, which is, if you're interested in sports, if you're interested in sports broadcasting, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a great read. Someone who has had been involved in so many amazing sports calls over his years and just kind of him talking about like breaking them down and what was going on in his head when he was making them. And the whole deal about the, the Miracle on Ice game was that 
he, he the only reason he was calling hockey in the 1980 Winter Olympics was because no one at ABC Sports had ever called hockey before. Hmm. And he had the experience of having called one game, the gold medal game, I believe, in the 1972 Winter Olympics in Sapporo, Japan. He So that one game was more experienced than anyone else at ABC had. He actually knew the sport, was a fan of it. So they figured he could actually explain what like offside, the offside rule is. And all of the icing and all the little nuances. And so that's the whole reason he was doing ice hockey. And it was kind of seen as this sort of, it wasn't seen as one of the big assignments to get in the Winter Olympics. You know, you wanted to get ice skating or figure skate or speed skating or uh, skiing. Those are the, the plum assignments that you might get. And ice hockey was seen as kind of a secondary assignment. Because, especially because no one thought the U.S. team was going to do anything other than maybe, maybe win a game or two. Yeah. But certainly not come close to getting any medal at all. And in the book he talks about, and he's talked about this because God knows he's been asked about this. I don't know that anyone has ever been asked about a call of a sporting event more than Al Michaels has been asked about the Miracle on Ice call. Hmm. I'm sure that he must on some level get absolutely sick of it. But in the interviews that I've seen with him, he's talked about how he was, people will ask him, hey, so did you have the, do you believe in miracles thing planned out? He said, absolutely not. He didn't want to make it, he didn't want to plan anything out. He never does. He just wants to say whatever comes to his head at that moment and make it as natural and authentic as possible. <laughs> and as the seconds were ticking down and he's still trying to call the call the game, and ice hockey, trying to call an ice hockey game is different than any other sport because it's so fast paced that you're spending so much of your time just going, you know, Aruzioni over to Brown, Brown back to, you know, just kind of keep doing the housekeeping of calling the game. But as he's doing that in his head, he's thinking about, oh, my God, they're actually going to do this. This team of U.S. college kids are going to be the best wow. hockey team ever assembled. It's miraculous. And so for some reason, miracles, miraculous stuck in his head. And as the seconds ticked down and he got to the last few seconds and there was obvious they were going to win, he just kind of took the idea of it being miraculous and spun it into a question mm -hmm. and got one of the most iconic calls in sports history out of it. Wow. That's pretty cool. Do you think, he, like, from an Olympic standpoint, he might have said, McDonald's is going to have to give away a lot of French fries for this one. That would have been, been good product placement if he had done that. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure if it was today, McDonald's would already have been all over it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. That's a good one. That is a good one. And I wonder had that call not been so amazing. I, this is dumb, but would the movie have happened? You know, like, like, right. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's an example of where the, the famous call and, and the fact that it was so well done and so iconic is so tied up with the event that you can't, yeah. you can't extricate one from the other. Yeah. Do you believe in hockey games? I <laughs> just watched one. Or if you would have gone, holy shit, they won. <laughs> that would have been a different, uh, iconic for a different reason. <laughs> were they really, the kids were in college? 
Yeah, it was all a bunch of college kids. Oh they were all like like college all basically a college all star team up against this <laughs> oh literally God. the best hockey team in the world that had just gone out and beat the NHL all star team like ten to three earlier in the in the year. Wow, that's just crazy to think um, those kids are going to go back to like uh, Western Civ. <laughs> Right. <laughs> go back to Minnesota and be uh Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Trying to hook up, getting rejected. Don't you know? Uh okay. Um hook up. You can hook up with the past episodes of Mount Rushmore Podcast, download, rate, and review past episodes. Five stars is what it costs. Uh if unless you don't give us five stars, you can't play them. Your podcast uh player won't work. So you gotta get five stars in order to be able to play past episodes and do that that'd be great and now um michael winfield's gonna give us his third i think my third yeah uh just a bit outside by <laughs> harry doyle from the film major league is played by bob Uecker in one nice. of these strange instances <laughs> where richard maybe you can correct me did bob Uecker was he already a play-by-play guy by the time that he got that role or oh, did sure. that role lead him to. I wasn't sure because I know he did it for the Brewers or has always done it for the Brewers or for whatever, but I mostly remember him as, you know, Bob Euchre from Mr. Belvedere. So I wasn't sure when the paths crossed with him. Oh, sure. I think he had been the Brewers radio play-by-play guy since like the 70s. Oh, okay. Well, Bob Euchre's call for a um, pitch by the character um, Ricky Vaughn, uh, a.k.a. The Wild Thing, uh, is one of another that has been mocked and repeated and probably referenced on Sports Center infinity times since it's happened in 1989 as just this perfect. Uh, what I like about the call, and it's a obviously it's a make believe from a movie sort of thing, is that it's done with such flippancy that this <laughs> downtrodden team. Uh, it's so un- unexpected or, or it's so not surprising that uh, this guy's can't hit the strike zone for, <laughs> for, for, uh, for hitting the side of a barn or whatever that expression is. But, um, you know, it takes great comedic timing and great writing and great little things to, um, to come up with something that uh, is probably mentioned in a baseball game legitimately if you just miss the strike zone but for a ball to sail you know 25 feet above a player's head or behind his back whichever way it went <laughs> uh and, and to, to have it delivered with the same sort of just like uh uh the same sort of panache is just great do you think it's a fact wait euchre was one of the losingest guys in sports or something like that is that who he was wait who was bob I would just see the guy in talk shows on like Carson and. Oh yeah, he was. He was. He was. Uh, his shtick was that that he would claim to be the worst baseball player who ever played in okay. the major leagues. Yeah. Okay. And that was his whole like self-deprecating sort of running joke. Yeah. Do you think it added that that was him saying it? Do you think or, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, but I think it was more that it was just beloved dad figure. Yeah. Bob Euchre. Yeah. You know the Mr. Belvedere dad. Uh-huh. Talking about like two goddamn hits. Yeah. <laughs> you can see that on the air. <laughs> ah, nobody's listening anyway. <laughs> cool. That's a fun one. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Uh, Richard. 
All right, my third choice is uh, Joe Starkey and his Call of the Play, a play so well-known that you only need to call it by the play in the big game between Cal and Stanford in 1982, where Cal completes a miracle comeback on a kick return with about eight laterals and weaving their way through the Stanford band, which had made their way on the field prematurely and completely messed up the uh, whole ending of the game. Oh, wow. And Joe Starkey's call, it's its one of, it's its the whole play. The football's in the tuba. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. It, it's, the whole play itself is so inconsistent even more than like a Kirk Gibson home run, because that's within the realm of things that you see. Injured guy comes off the bench and hits a home run. Improbable? Absolutely. Impossible? No, sort of. But we've you've seen a home run get hit before. You've never seen eight laterals at the end of a kickoff return <laughs> with the opposing team's band coming onto the field halfway during the play and stopping their team from being able to tackle the runner and then having a tuba player get trucked in the end zone by the guy scoring the touchdown. And Joe Stark and Joe Starkey just his call matches the game, the the, the play so well. Because it starts off as very much like, well, the, he's gonna squib it down there and they're gonna try a couple of laterals and they've tried another one and they're still in trouble. Oh. And then they make one lateral that kind of springs the whole play loose. And he kind of goes, Oh, the ball's still alive as they get it to midfield. And then he, you can just, his, his emotions start to go from, Oh, we're going to lose this game. It's just this sort of like last second, like miracle attempt to just try to do anything to wait. Hold on a second. Something's happening here. And then he's getting really excited. And then it's, Oh, and the band is on the field and they're going to score a touchdown. And and then there's like about 20, this a lot of times in the replays of the call, they cut out about 20 to 30 seconds directly after the touchdown is scored because the referees don't actually signal touchdown right away. There are a bunch of flags that were thrown on the play. And so Joe Starkey has to kind of come back down from that, the high of calling the play to sort of explain like, well, we have to see what's going on. There could be pen- there could have been a lateral that was forward. There could have been a penalty against Cal. If so, Cal's going to lose the game. And then the referee signaled touchdown, and that's when he goes into, oh, my God, the Bears. The <laughs> Bears have won the most thrilling, heart-rending, unbelievable game in college football history. And just go t- takes, takes it from having come back down to all of a sudden taking the going from a 10 to a five to like a 30. <laughs> and it's just this, it's just this roller coaster of emotions within the call of the play. And no one will ever get to call a football play that happens like that ever again. And so it, it really, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity for a, an announcer to, mm-hmm. to say something. Yeah. And, you go back and listen to it and it's just like, it's just raw emotion and it's fantastic. Do you think that had a, so the Kirk Gibson call had just a pastoral aspect. It felt like, I felt like I was hearing the music from 
the natural. Sure. Uh, even though it wasn't there, it felt like a it was cinematic, but also something even greater than cinema. It almost seemed like everything that baseball is that hockey, football, you know, aren't was in mm-hmm. that call that um, the fans, you know, the just the green of the grass, you know, the cheering, the space of the stadium, all that stuff was in there. The slowness that baseball can have um, that some people have problems with was 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 a positive aspect of that. But it sounds like a hyperkinetic thing you're describing. It's very different what you're describing. Yeah. And I think that that's an element of maybe football versus baseball. Yeah. Like what you're, I think that's what you're getting at a little bit. Uh-huh. I mean, football is such a, a more of a, a driving and kind of like moving sort of yeah. excitement sort of sport versus baseball, which kind of moves at its own pace. You know, it's, it's a lot of moments of boredom punctuated by these incredibly amazing uh-huh. things that can happen. Um, and, you know, the fact that it, both of them, that's one of the things that all of these calls are going to have is that, except for Michael's, because he's making up making up ones that are fake. But all of the <laughs> all of the ones that I have are going to be end of game calls. Because you're building up I mean sports casting is essentially telling the story of the game. And you're building up to this conclusion. And you don't know what the conclusion is going to be as you're telling the story. And so as a sportscaster, your job is to try and find a way to bring everything that you've been calling for the last three hours to a satisfying conclusion, regardless of what the outcome of the game, whether it's a blowout or it's some like fantastic finish. Mm-hmm. And you have to find a way to be able to raise what you do to match the heights that the game itself yeah. is undertaking. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not good when at the end of the game, the announcer's like, Welp. Okie dokie. All righty then. Okie doke. So, watch Sliders on Fox. <laughs> That's always the most disappointing thing is when they have to get some some last weird plug in for whatever for whatever branded show that is like now. Enjoy La Brea. Oh, come on. The uh, appropriation agent play the game. <laughs> okay, uh, Winfield, your third. Oh, sure. my fourth, my your fourth, fourth and sorry. final. Or, sorry, super dumb one. Oh, God, uh, Richard was so eloquent about building up the importance of the the, the call, but mine is uh, Jim Ross screaming at the top of his head. By God, they've killed him. They've broken him in half. Uh, with the Undertaker versus Mankind in the <laughs> Hell in the Cell match at 1998's um, uh, King of the Ring tournament. And listen, I understand that it's all scripted. My last two choices have been scripted. I don't know how much is written down for these announcers when they do a wrestling match. I understand there's probably some beats that they've got to get to. But when you see this 300-pound man get thrown off the top of a 20 foot cage through oh, a table. Geez. I seem to feel like his reaction was somewhat sincere. Not that they actually think that he killed the man, but just that that he's broken in half. I think that there is a, a uh, an intensity in which uh, that sort of dialogue is delivered that 
um, I think helps sell the story of like wrestling to the audience, at least to the, the people uh, watching at home. And I think that's what all sportscasters are doing, whether it's fake sports or whatever. They're they're telling the story. And in this instance, it was this man getting utterly throttled mm-hmm. and just, you know, putting his body through a table, falling 15 feet, however high it was. 20, 20 feet, feet, yeah. Um, just ridiculous. You know, a tooth came, went from his mouth through his nose. This oh, guy, God. Probably, yeah, he, uh, mankind got really, <laughs> really beat up doing all this stupid shit. Yeah, and, uh, Jim Ross has said, Michael, by the way, not to jump in, but that he didn't like knowing what was going to be happening in a match. Mm -hmm. So your point is 100% valid, that he did not know that Mankind was going to go off the top of this cage and through a table and all of the other stuff that happened during the match when he got slammed through the the cage later on in the match to the mat and got knocked unconscious, basically. He didn't know any of that was going to be happening. That's um, one of those strange things that um, I liked about this match. I mean, not just the, the brutality, but the, this is like their first big stunt was this big fall off the cage. And then they kind of c- came back somehow to do more, more stuff. They wheeled him out on like a stretcher later. And then like he got off the stretcher and came running back. Like it, it was just this weird sense of like, how much punishment can this guy suffer through this guy that's you know hobbling he's like kirk gibbs he's like basically he's like kirk (laughs) gibson (laughs) Uh, boy vince scully calling a wrestling match would be fun Uh, (laughs) he just he goes through the table (laughs) farmer john sausages (laughs) are always good in a moment like this Uh, it takes a spinning pile driver to really uh uh now he's in an arm bar um but I don't know. I, you know, like I said, whether how much is known beforehand or not in one of these matches, seeing someone bad call a wrestling match and boring really affects the overall outcome. And it's the same thing when you're watching a baseball game or a basketball game or whatever. If something just feels off, it just doesn't, it's just not as interesting. They, these these men and uh, women that do this now are just like the good ones really stand out and the bad ones really fall away and the mediocre ones just kind of sit there and really mm-hmm. kind of affect your enjoyment of a game or match or whatever. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, the last the last one. one. Last choice, final round. Final round, two outs, top of the ninth. <laughs> um. My last choice, I realized that I had picked all 80s ones for my first three, which I guess makes sense. You're sort of naturally tied to the calls that you remember growing up, especially as a kid. So I wanted to pick one a little bit outside of my age range for my last one. So I'm going with Chick Anderson and his call of the 1973 Belmont Stakes as won by Secretariat, Secretariat by 31 lengths over the field. One of the most amazing, probably the most amazing horse race in history. Uh, Secretariat going for a triple crown, which hadn't been accomplished in something like 30 years. Um, and just demolishes the field. I mean, 31, nobody wins by 31 lengths. He set a, a, a world record for the length that I think is still held to this day. 
it was to the point where on the call of or on the broadcast on CBS, they had to go to a secondary camera while he was coming, while Secretariat was coming down the front stretch, just to be able to see the other horses. They were so far away. Oh wow! The main camera shot, you could not see any other horse because he was so far ahead of everyone else. And Chick Anderson's call is just this combination of Chick Anderson was this kind of classic, you know, horse racing play by play track announcer type guy. And it starts off, the race starts off as essentially a two horse race between Secretariat and this horse called Sham. And then Secretariat starts going ahead by two lengths and then four lengths. And Chick Anderson is just sort of calling this. And you can tell he's just getting more and more incredulous as Secretariat is pulling out to this impossible lead. And at one point, Chick Anderson describes Secretariat as moving like a tremendous machine, mm-hmm. which I think is probably my favorite turn of phrase I've ever heard mm-hmm. in a sports broadcast. Mm-hmm. I think for something that was just to be able to off the top of your head, while watching this historic event mm-hmm. to be able to, to come up with a turn of phrase like that is just remarkable. Yeah. And I think horse racing guys have a lot of, they're, they're just, they have to most of the time during the race, they've got to call this horse is in the lead, two links back to this, three links back to this horse, this horse is in fifth. And it's a lot of sort of just, it's a horse racing call. It's just that, but up, but up, but up, but up, but up. And this is one of the rare instances where, because it was so dominant and it was so unbelievable that he got to call it in a way that he otherwise would never get to call a race. Oh. And he rose to the occasion. Yeah. Because it's such a dramatic lead. There's no question about. Yeah. There's no question about no one cared about who was in second place. You literally couldn't see second place. Now, was this the one where... Um, George Foreman comes out and punches Secretariat, mm-hmm. and they go, Secretariat's down! Secretariat. Yes, yes. George Foreman playing Mongo, dressed up as Mongo from Blazing Saddles, comes out, <laughs> punches out Secretariat. I believe Secretariat also stopped to like take a nap in the middle of the race. <laughs> yeah. Sired, sired a couple of foals and then finished the race. That deserves a comeuppance. Like that's kind of that's <laughs> speaking of last week, yeah. Arrogance, arrogance. Uh, God, Mongo upon in Game of Life was 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 Mongo just upon in Game of Life. Okay, awesome. All right, so let's uh, let's pick some. I I am not a good uh, sports announcer, caller. So this sports will have guy, no, caller sports guy, voice mouth person. This will have no flair. Let's go, Kirk Gibson. Um, because right, because why not? Um, and then uh, I didn't know that uh, about Secretariat, so that was kind of cool. Um, and uh, uh, I f- I could feel it. I could feel the fall when you're talking about Jim Ross. Um, is it Helena Cell? Is that what you're saying? Yes. And and let's also go with um, uh, Miracle on Ice because those crazy college kids. Gotta love them. Well done. Okay. This has been the Mount Rushmore of Sports Calls. I'm always Jeff. I'm Richard. I'm Michael. I'm still Jeff. <laughs> <laughs>